Hi, everyone. Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast here on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Amantia Muhadini. Amantia serves as the Sustainable and Impact Investing Strategist for the Americas. Uh, glad to welcome as well Mitch Resnick of Federated Hermes. Mitch serves as Head of Sustainable Fixed Income for the firm. So, Amantia, Mitch, it's great to be with you both, and thank you for spending some time today with our listeners and clients. Looking forward to the conversation. Great. Thanks, Dan. Looking forward to it. Likewise. Thanks for having us. So before we get into it up front for our listeners, I do want to point out that our conversation will tie right into the latest edition of the monthly Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, which can now be located up on UBS.com slash CIO, though we do have a number of topics that we want to dive into today with our guests. So let's get right to it. Maybe Amatia looking across the U.S. at the state level, there appears to be traction of anti-ESG legislation taking shape. So from your vantage point, Amantia, what's driving this? And can you bring us up to speed a bit in terms of what you've been tracking? Of course, Dan, uh, it's a very timely question. Um, look, on this podcast series, we talk a lot about the uh, regulatory and legislative initiatives from around the world, which are uh, supporting some of the tailwinds behind sustainable investing. Um, yet it's difficult to miss the increasing drumbeat of state-level, U.S.-specific anti-ESG or environmental social governance um, legislation that has been popping up over the last call it one year. Um, just to give you a couple of data points there on what we're observing, um, in the first half of 2023, there were 165 individual bills or regulations or, or opinions from local uh, policymakers uh, that specifically were, were against um, ESG-type considerations or investments. And these were introduced across 37 states. Now, 165 may sound like a large number, and, and it is, um, but we would like to also note that so far the majority of these have failed to gain support with about 20 bills passing, um, as well as six resolutions that are coming into force so far according to a climate risk consulting firm. Um, now, even though only 20 bills and six resolutions have passed, we, we do expect this flow to continue. Um, a lot of the legislators have gone or are going into their summer recess, and so some of the pending bills are likely to be reintroduced or retaken up again sort of in the fall uh, in, in the country. Now, why is this important? Well, what we're tracking here is uh, are two things. Firstly, we're looking at... Um, Strictly, what are these these regulations and laws, and you know whether they're getting approved or not? But more specifically, we want to understand um, what do they mean for us as investors, what their implications are from an investment perspective. And to get to this understanding, um, we sampled 96 bills, rules, or opinions that were issued at the state level up until the end of April. Um, and broadly, we found that about two-thirds, a little over two-thirds of these 96, were would, would be categorized by us as being uh, against ESG considerations, with uh, a remaining a little less than one-third being uh, supportive of sustainability and ESG considerations. Now, even more importantly, when we look at these, they broadly will fall into types of rules, which matter to us as investors. Um, so the first type are 
public procurement type requirements. So these are, are laws or regulations that, that extend outside of the investment domain that we don't think are immediately, at least in the near term, uh, relevant to us as investors. And they specifically will prohibit state entities from considering ESG factors where making decisions on contracting with service providers. Um, so, for example, an Idaho House bill was an example of this, where if the Idaho state needs to, to engage with any company for its services, um, it explicitly is, is prohibited from considering how the company is doing on its own climate, uh, social, or even governance factors. So that's one example. Uh, another example in this category that is a little more relevant to us, certainly in the financial services industry, is that uh, uh, these uh, rules will prohibit uh, state treasuries or local governments, think municipalities, from con contracting with banks that would, quote-unquote, boycott um, specific industries. And more commonly, it's uh, firearms or fossil fuel industries, which are named across these bills. Um, and so this creates a little more pressure for, for financial services institutions to consider how they're servicing and working with, with these local level governments and, and to, to show, to prove that they are or they are not uh, into boycotting specific industries. Now, the second category of these legislations that is relevant um, and more directly impacts sustainable investing are those that are tied to investment strategy requirements for public pension funds. So this set of legislations will either explicitly or, or implicitly restrict the ability of public pension funds to use ESG information in investment decisions, um, especially if it's considered to be non-pecuniary, or that's another word for non-financially relevant or material. Um, and in this case, it's important for us to understand, um, firstly, that even this range of uh, of laws that prohibit ESG investments um, varies from very strict rules that, that really set sort of a no-go type of, of rule uh, to, to ones that will allow for ESG alternatives to be offered as part of an, an investment menu for public pension plans um, as long as they, they still meet federal guidelines around fiduciary responsibilities and, and materiality. Now, um, again, back to the question of why, how does this matter for us as investors? Well, the first thing that we're looking at is will this uh, be a limitation to the potential growth of uh, sustainable investing assets under management and therefore assets going to push on sustainability and benefit from the investment opportunities uh, over the, the near to medium term? And for this question, we looked at what's the number of, of you know, assets invested in public pension plans across states. Um, turns out that that number is 5.27 trillion as of the end of uh, 2022, according to the National Association of State Retirement Administrators. <laughs> A mouthful there. So there's about five trillion dollars invested in public pension plans that could be in scope of these local level rules. Now, what I'd point out here is that half of that, or a little less than half, 2.2 trillion, is invested by the states of California, New York, and Texas. Of these three states, California and New York have explicitly pro-sustainability uh, rules and opinions in the books, whereas Texas uh, is, is focused more on sort of the, uh, driving some of the anti-ESG uh, decisions. So, so this, this is important for investors to understand and place into context this $5 trillion in the broader, um, about $60 trillion of estimated invested um, assets in the United States. 
the vast majority of which is uh, assets that are investment for, invested from uh, private investors outside of retirement funds, whether pu- private or public. So from from this assessment, in our view, while over the, the medium to longer term, sure, there if the trend continues in this direction, there could be some limitations. There could also be some chilling in terms of um, how, how sustainability is communicated. Broadly, we think there's still significant room to grow for SI strategies in the U.S. market. And what's important here is also that the investment opportunities, which are secular and, and, and not relevant, not related to these, um, drivers will continue to remain in place in our view. Clearly a lot of moving parts, Amatiev, as you lay that out for us. So, Mitch, to welcome you into the conversation, anything you would cite in the way of notable implications here for investors? I guess put another way, for some context, is the pathway for participation in sustainable investing link strategies drastically narrowing? Hey, Dan. Um, and Amatya, the, the, the comments you had and the work you did is, is really interesting and, and really insightful, and it does scale the concern and the issues. Um, and, I, and to answer your question, no, I mean, I don't think so. And if you look at flows into ESG bond funds in the U.S., they were about 4% of total funds, mutual funds in 2020, and just above 6% now. So it's still growing. Uh, it's slowing down a little bit, and I think that perhaps maybe some of the rhetoric around that has had um, uh, some effect to the flows, but the choices and the options that are there are still growing. Um, you know, flows into ESG funds in the U.S., which, for example, net, net positive year to date. I, I think that, um, it's, you know, the issue is partially around the, the, the broad and very different, uh, different under- understandings of what ESG is. You know, I think that to some degree, um, ESG integration and the more thematic strategies that one can choose from can exist in the same investment house and are not mutually exclusive. So, you know, we've done some analysis um, on, on the fixed income side to show that there is a link between bond spreads and non-fundamental factors such as the environment and, and social and, and clearly governance um you know, is a is a major factor, and 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 because we've seen that there is a, a relationship between the two, we feel that that you have, um, you know, you, that you can deliver into your fiduciary duty um, uh, and deliver performance by factoring in those those considerations, because of this link between spreads and these non-fundamental factors. Um, what's interesting also about credit is that. You know, um, the if, if, if one can find precision in incorporating these non-fundamental factors um, into the investment process, then that's extremely helpful because whereas with equity, you can buy the stock or not buy the stock or overweight or underweight, in credit, you have a lot of options to access a company. Um, and that gives you the option to have more precision in the way you invest based on the risk that you perceive. So, for example, if governance is really poor, but there's a lot of cash flow, maybe you would uh, buy front end of the capital, front end of the term structure, or senior in the capital structure. A little bit rest, a little bit less risky, but still allows you to access the cash flow of that business, and possibly that financial stakeholding gives you the option to engage with the company and improve their behaviors. So, you know, you, there are lots of ways to. to um, Put that, 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 that information to work. 
in terms of the, the narrowing of the field, you know, I said that the market's still growing. There is one aspect of fixed income that differs from credit that, that probably is a bit limiting, but it doesn't have anything to do necessarily with the CSG component. It's just it, it's the scalability of bonds themselves. So you can see some very niche products in equity, um, you know, maybe um, water funds or uh, diversity funds, DEI funds, and I think you can you can get away with, with that in credit if you move away from benchmarks. But because you the, the physical security and equity is very scalable, you can build decent-sized funds with small holdings. But in fixed income, because credit is physically limited by the actual number of bonds that a company issues, um, you can't magnify that exposure. So you need to own more names in a fund to get that same kind of um, scaled-up exposure. Um, and the more niche you are, that sometimes that's a limiting factor in the in the nicheness uh, of a fund. So you have to be willing to take on perhaps a little more credit risk to own fewer names um, to, to do that. But but you know, and then that means you move away from benchmarks, and that's okay. You know, we can we, we can definitely definitely do that. The last thing I will say is that we did see a decline in U.S. dollar labeled funds, and what I mean by labeled funds, that would be a green bond or social bond fund, and. It's hard to know if that has some effect um, in the in the um, rhetoric around ESG, but um, but we have seen you know in other jurisdictions that market has continued to grow, uh, but in the U.S. that has fallen back uh, a little bit. Well, some very helpful clarity, and of course, we'll continue to track these developments very closely. I do want to move on to our next focus topic. Amantia, we've previously discussed efforts forged by countries and companies to achieve net zero targets. If we look across the globe, what, Amantia, would you say are some recent examples of momentum gained around these continued efforts? Yeah, thanks, and it's interesting that we're having these conversations in a way back to back because it really illustrates how um, the, the, the world is a large place and the focus on sustainability continues in our view. And really here we're illustrating how, how different regions are taking different approaches to defining um, and then acting on sustainability and ESG. Um, and, and Mitch, thank you for your comments on credit in particular as with the focus on fixed income that's particularly top of mind. So let me start here by noting that according to Morningstar data, um, um, the majority of assets that are invested in in sustainability-focused funds, um, and when I say majority, I mean north of 80%, reaching 85%, are invested in funds, both equity and fixed income, that are domiciled on the European continent. Um, and so that really goes a little bit to show how um, a, a lot of the kind of fundamental drivers in the push continues to be driven by European domiciled investors and, and really points to just kind of the upside and innovation and perhaps the grappling with, with Asia and, and the U.S. As, as distinct regions then that are kind of following suit here in their own timing and timelines. Now, Speaking of Europe, um, what we saw last month was uh, development in Switzerland. So the Swiss electorate um, accepted a, a referendum titled the, the Climate and Innovation Act, uh, which essentially codifies into law the country's net zero objectives. So this is significant as an example of a country that is moving forward and, and kind of legalizing their objectives to reach uh, net zero, specifically 
uh, Switzerland is, is, is committing to uh, lowering its emissions by 75% uh, compared to 1990 um, by 2040 and then reducing them further by 89% by 2050. Um, so in the next 30 years, they have quite a lot of work to do and they really, based on this commitment, um, would anticipate having to move at a faster pace in decarbonizing the local economy. Now, this is important to us, uh, not only because Switzerland sits sort of at, you know, at, at, in the physical heart of, of the European continent, um, it's also important because it exemplifies another example, another case study here of how governments can go forward with incentivizing decarbonization. What's interesting here is that this, um, uh, while the Swiss electorate approved this specific uh, proposal, it last year rejected a different proposal, uh, which required an increase of carbon taxes on industries like aviation. And that proposal would have also resulted in decarbonization. So what this signifies to us is that while governments and citizens are interested in decarbonization and in the net zero transition, what they're focusing on are, are this uh, carrot over stick approach. So instead of you know, setting sticks and setting uh, kind of barriers and taxes for industries to reduce uh, carbon emissions, they instead are investing and choosing to further incentivize um, technologies uh, and as well as innovation and retrofitting that would result in this kind of more forward-looking new economy that is decarbonizing um, and also is incentivizing kind of organic innovation. So this is very similar to the European Union Green deal industrial plan that was discussed a few months ago, as well as the U.S. Um, Inflation Reduction Act, both of which came with uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of investment to incentivize uh, innovation instead of, you know, the, the stick approach here of carbon taxes. So, so it's another interesting example. So, Mitch, from your vantage point, in what ways does technology play a role in helping to meet targets? So, put another way, what kind of innovations or practices do you see investment dollars flowing to the most at the moment? Sure. Yeah. I mean, as, as they say in the state of Maine, I don't think you can get there from here uh, without uh, innovation and technology. And I sometimes worry there's almost a bit too much faith and, and hope in that technology is, you know, is the... Um, uh, the variable, the unknown that's going to get us there. But there is a lot of money pouring into technology, um, both from a company level and partially in, um, I would say, incentivized by regulation and uh, innovation programs from European Union. Japan's got a green innovation fund. Even the U.S. with the IRA. China's got some considerations in a five-year plan. So there is, uh, shall we say, there are incentives. But the, the technologies, I would say, are kind of broken down into two buckets. There are some that are being deployed today, and then there are some that are a little bit longer term um, because there, there's, a, there's an, um, an investment lag that's required to, to get there from here. But, you know, innovation is key. And when we look at sustainability and, and climate change credentials of companies, that is absolutely one thing we're looking for particularly in the hard-to-abate sectors, because that's where the materiality is in, in the decarbonization. Um, so with, you know, with, with, with companies, you know, in steelmaking, for example, you know, steelmaking requires a huge amount of energy. And, uh, and of course, one key ingredient is coal, which is, um, you know, produces it's one of the nasties when it comes to climate change. So what we're seeing more and more is that um, companies, 
large steelmakers that have um, aligned themselves with, with the Paris Agreement and decarbonization are shifting some production to something called electric arc furnaces, and that is the use of scrap that's heated um, and uh, through, through um, an electrical process, which can be sourced from renewable resources as a means to create steel, although it's a lower quality steel, so it doesn't cover everything, but, but, but that can be used, um, you know, uh, with a much, you know, with a much lower carbon footprint and it, you know, deals with the cyclical, um, the, the circular economy. We see the same thing in packaging where packaging companies are looking to use, um, are, are much more interested in using recycled materials because it's a lot less energy to produce the end product than it is, say, for example, in the, pack- in the paper packaging side, virgin fiber. Uh, other areas, um, you know, we, we've seen some announcements on something called solid-state batteries. These are batteries that re- um, lean much more on chemical interaction, and they have um, they require less charging. And for electric vehicles, they allow for lar- longer driving, uh, longer range, which is something, you know, I get a little bit range anxiety in my car, so I'm quite pleased to see that. Um, you know, and don't forget, and this is also an investment opportunity for these companies as well. They see growth areas. You know, uh, large cement companies are producing low-carbon cement as a growth opportunity because the companies that they're providing product for have set near net zero targets. So they're looking for ways to reduce the carbon footprint through the value chain. We've seen that with um, companies also that, uh, for example, that are major producers of large cable, like the copper cable is a major input into the electrification of, um, of the system. And, and of course, finally, you know, delivery companies or even mining companies are looking for ways to, um, uh, what we call the electrification of, of their fleet. So that's, you know, those are some, those are some, um, you know, from a, from a company perspective, what we're seeing. Longer-term technologies that are being developed in the early, early stages is hydrogen energy uh, or green energy. Um, it's a, it's a, effectively a chemical process that meaningfully um, that creates energy meaningfully would, would wean us off of fossil fuels. Negative emissions technologies, which uh, I'm sure Monty, by phone hadn't dropped, I'm sure you would have referred to, sort of carbon capture usage and storage. There's money flowing in, in, into the, those areas as well because not only do we need to reduce the amount of energy um, we use to reduce carbon footprint and also um, products in the process to reduce carbon emissions, but also for the remainder that we can't reduce, um, we need to find a, a way to distill the CO2 from it and use it in other, in other, um, other uses. The, the European Union identified something like 500 developing technologies in clean energy, you know, biofuels, heat pumps, heat pumps, hydrogen energy, all this stuff. We're at early stages, and I think as they scale up, costs will come down, and I'm hoping that hopefully when these technologies come online, we'll see um, the increase in the velocity of the decarbonization process.
Well, Mitch, it is encouraging to hear about this wide range of innovation out there, which seems to be gaining momentum and making a difference. So thank you for highlighting those examples. If we move on to our third and final focus topic for this month, focusing in on climate for a few moments, Amantia, as is evident from the ongoing Canadian wildfires, these types of extreme weather events, among other types, they appear to be growing more common year by year. So as a result, what are some notable economic and societal implications of this phenomenon? Of course, Dan, and, and, and I also love to hear all the examples of technological innovation here, as that's really what we're focused on in terms of what do the innovations and technological and, and investment opportunities look like. But this next question that you're asking about wildfires is, in some ways, is the so what, right? It, it's bringing us back to why are we focused on these questions, which then gets us to the now what. And the now what is, is in the investment opportunities that Mitch was just discussing. Um, for anyone who who was based in the kind of U.S. Northeast over the last month, in particular the beginning of June, and in particular if you were one of the 100 million people listening who was set in in the U.S., you probably were affected by uh, some of the worst air quality uh, in decades. And New York City in particular, the first week of June, we experienced the worst air quality since the 1960s. Um, and what drove that, that terrible air quality were these... Uh, uh, forest wildfires that were burning in the eastern coast of Canada and when, and wind shifted kind of the, 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 uh, uh, air pollution over through the United States as well. Now, this was really just a one example, a very vivid example this summer of how the environment and air pollution really impacts us all in, in very visible ways. And, and, uh, this is an example that many people around the world have been experiencing for a long time now. It wasn't isolated. I should say, uh, between 2018 and 2022, wildfires caused uh, $69 billion in damages and losses, according to Munich RE, an, an insurance company. Um, and the worst affected regions in this period were the U.S. as well as Southeast Australia. Now, I should stop here and note that wildfires are largely a natural phenomenon uh, in some regions they can even be exacerbated by forest management techniques and practices. However, uh, there's a robust body of academic evidence uh, that is indicating that hotter and drier as well as longer summers are likely going to increase the frequency and the severity of wildfires, meaning that we're more likely to experience these wildfires which are growing in intensity, which have negative air pollution implications. So this is really kind of bringing to life the so what, as I mentioned. Why do we focus on sustainability? Well, we do because not only it has negative societal implications from unpleasantness to actual, uh, you know, loss of life and negative health care implications, but also because the, the tools that we've had so far in our, in our toolkit to protect from what was largely a natural phenomenon are starting to not become as useful. So one of the ways that people and companies traditionally protected themselves was through insurance, uh, insurance against weather events, uh, which which would account for the probability of losses due to these types of events. Yet, as these events are becoming more extreme and costlier, it's getting harder to get insured. Um, 
just examples from here in the U.S., again, if you look at State Farm and Allstate, two insurance providers, um, they both have announced that they will no longer be able to offer new insurance policies to homeowners in California due to this growing risk of wildfires uh, and the soaring construction costs that are associated with it. And now, again, as I'm mentioning, of course, a lot of it is tied to policymaking and, and other rules, not all climate change. But it is also a an, an very vivid example of rising costs to individual people off insuring their homes, which will impact their further decisions. Um, and, and is what makes it very important for us to then look forward and think, what are those mitigation actions that are likely to be incentivized by as people and governments again see the reality of the, these costs that are being imposed so 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 as we look forward we think as nature really comes into our living rooms in these ways um, we're likely to see more impetus for action more innovation and this to be one of those tailwinds to support broadly some of the investments in, in the technologies of adaptation and mitigation that, w- that we're talking about in this discussion. Mati, I just want to ask as we begin to wrap up as a fun question given the time of year during the summer months as is often the case many like to catch up on reading I know within the latest SI perspective publication, you provided readers with a a bit of a reading list, recommendations, so to speak. So as it relates to sustainability, Amatia, any good reads that you can recommend for us? Of course. Uh, In in some ways, this is my favorite perspective of the year. Um, So we, as as a whole team, came up with five titles ranging from history to biographies to science and to a novel. Uh, for those readers who are interested in sustainability and are looking for some inspiration, some thought-provoking reading or some education on the topics, um, I'd say I, w- I would know just one that I found interesting. It's a Donut Economics by Kate Rawforth, who is a UK-based um, uh, economist, really proposes a thought-provoking view of uh, modern-day economic science and, and how we could start thinking about what we maximize in a way that we can build a world that is well-balanced and, and sustainable, where both planet and humans can live. So I'd say it's very thought-provoking and fascinating. Um, it's led to many interesting conversations for me and for us over here in CIO. So that's just one of the five titles I would encourage readers to take a look at the rest of the summer reading list. Thank you, Amatia. And to your point for our listeners, be sure to check out the publication for the full list. I think we do have Mitch back on. Mitch, we were just asking Amatia about some of her favorite summer reads as it relates to sustainability. Any in particular that come to mind that you would like to share with us? I'm, I'm in a graduate program right now in sustainability, and so I haven't had as much time for free reading. But um, last year, uh, I read a book called The Ministry for the Future, which is light reading. Um, it, it is a um, it's, it's a novel, a little bit of a science fiction feel, but it takes place sort of in it's contemporary now, but it envisions what the world would be like with um, extreme temperatures that we're having. So it's remarkably realistic, but it's extremely well written. The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. I highly recommend it. It's a great summer read and also a great summer read is A Life on Our Planet. David Attenborough, basically anything David Attenborough says, does, writes, produces, you want to attach yourself to. He's, he's brilliant, attaching quite a, a human and, and an accessible uh, sensibility to, to, to the natural world and, and to all these issues um, and really allows you to appreciate what, what's around us. So uh, there are my two, two books for you for the summer. Fairly light, 
enjoyable readings. Great. Well, it sounds like there's a lot there to keep one's mind busy on the beach or the lake or wherever one enjoys some downtime. Well, Mitch and Amantia, thank you both for joining us, spending some time with our listeners, our clients here on the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast. Very productive, actionable conversation and looking forward to catching back up with you both again at some point. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dan. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.